All right. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into it. Lord, today I believe you want to speak to the hearts of your people. Because this is something that weighs on us. Lord, today I pray that as we look into your word, as we look into the story of David, weights will be lifted from the shoulders. Souls would be freed from the bondage that the enemy puts on us. And that we would receive grace and mercy this morning in spite of who we are. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, here we go. John. Chapter 8. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. The te- and this is talking about Jesus. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is kind of a well-known story in the Bible. People in, in church world, we hear it over and over and over again. And so, and so there's this, this woman who is brought to Jesus. And they're not accusing her of anything. It's not hearsay. It's not someone told someone told someone told someone. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Red-handed. And, and the law of Moses has a very specific procedure, punishment, consequence that needs to take place. Long before Jesus ever walked this earth as Jesus... The law of Moses is very black and white. That a person caught in adultery will be put to death. And they'll be put to death in a manner that they are going to throw rocks at them. Which I can't imagine has to be a very painful, heartless way to go. And so the religious leaders, they're, 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 they're setting Jesus up. They want to see if he's going to speak against the law. And so they bring this woman to him. And they, they cite the facts, and they cite the law, and, they, and they're waiting to see if Jesus is going to hang himself. And they say, okay, Jesus, what do you say? What should we do here? 
And Jesus knows what's going on. He knows, he knows the hearts of these people. He knows that they're trying to suck him in. They're trying to, to trap him. And in true Jesus fashion, he is going to turn the tide. And he's going to turn it on them. And he tells them, all right, whoever of you is without sin, go ahead, throw the first rock. Any of you, if, if, if you've never broken the law, if you've never oopsed, if you've never went against God's law, go ahead. You throw the rock. You throw the first rock. Slowly, one by one, the story tells us. Instead of throwing their rocks, they begin to drop them. First, the older people. It seems that age has a way of humbling us. Age has a way of looking a little bit more truthful into who we are. But the younger men will follow soon. And they will drop their stones and they all, they all walk away. And I can, I mean, I was just thinking, what is playing out in this woman's mind as she's watching this? Maybe, maybe she's thinking, man, I just, I just dodged a bullet, well, a rock. Or maybe she's thinking, finally, there's some honesty in this thing called religion. But whatever she was thinking, eventually, it's only her and Jesus. This angry mob has gone, and he asks her a simple question. Is there no one left here to condemn you? Is there anybody here, woman, that has sentenced you to death? And she must have looked at him and said, no, there is no one here. And then Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Stop what you're doing. And in that moment, this, this flood of God's mercy and grace has been poured out upon her. Jesus did not punish her for her sin. Caught in the act, Jesus did not punish her for her sin. And you know what I find interesting? Nowhere in the story does it say she asked for forgiveness. Maybe she was upset because she got caught or nervous that she was got. I don't know. But it doesn't say that she has had this heart change and she has asked for forgiveness. Yet Jesus will forgive her anyway. And then the people, these men that were there ready to throw the rocks. He doesn't, he doesn't pursue them. He doesn't question them. He doesn't condemn them. Obviously, they were with sin because they could not throw the first stone. And he just allows them to walk away. And I could imagine that they left that day just a little bit more humble. They left that day maybe thinking that they have just received the grace and the mercy of God. Something they, they, they maybe they didn't even think they needed or, or, or they even wanted. But yet, they were receiving it. And so... Nine verse, uh, 11 verses. It's a short story. And that's it. We have no more details. It's just a tremendous story of Jesus Christ and the grace and the mercy of our God in the face of our sin. There are a lot of stories built into the story of David. And there are a lot of 
stories in there that are really, really popular in church world, but there's two that really stand out to even people who don't go to church, even people who may have never picked up or even read a Bible. The first story is David and Goliath. Everybody has heard about David and Goliath. Even if, I mean, even if you watch the stupid show where they were Gumby-type people, you know, gee, Davy, you know, David and Goliath. Um, and the other one is David and Bathsheba. Now, if you, if you haven't been in church world, if, if you're just kind of out there, you've probably heard about those stories. Maybe you don't know the details. Maybe, maybe people don't understand exactly what transpired throughout the whole thing, but, but they have heard of it. They have heard of them. And both of those stories really give us a, a snapshot into the heart of who David is. Now, the story of David and Goliath, it happens when he's just a boy. And it just shows this tremendous mature God awareness as this young man goes up against the giant and he trusts God and he, he just understands what God wants to do for his people. And so David steps into that truth, steps into that anointing as a young boy. But the story of Bathsheba and David comes much later in David's life. David's king by now and he's lived life for a while and he's been tested by living life, just like life seems to, to do to us. If you've lived life, which I can look out and see most of you have, life tends to test you. It tends to move and push you in different directions. And life will leave its mark on you. Sometimes life can leave scars on us. But that's just the nature of who we are and the world we live in. And as we travel the ups and downs on this journey every day, we can't help but to be changed in one way or another. When David fought Goliath, he was a boy. And things were, things were probably very simple for him as a boy, as, as most of us have experienced growing up. As a kid, it's just, when can I get out of school? When can I go play? Now it's, when can I hit the Xbox? You know, things are just much, much simpler. But as we grow older, as we see David and his encounter with Bathsheba, as, as we grow older, things get a little bit more complex. Things aren't so simple anymore. We have responsibilities and things we have to take care of. I was thinking, as I stand here before you today, at one point, all I cared about was I was just a little kid. I was, I was my mother and father's son. But now as I stand here, I have all of these hats that I wear, as most of you do. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a child of God. All these things, and sometimes try to balance all those, all those things all at one time, it creates a complexity in our lives. Life becomes multifaceted. And I know that in all of us, we have stories that we've lived through that we're really proud of. And then we have those stories that we're not so proud of, the stories that we don't like to talk about. We have stories of success. We have stories of failure. But all of them leave their mark upon us. All of them change us in some way. It is, it is a very true statement to say that, that we are the sum of all of our yesterdays. The person you are today is exactly because of the experiences that you've had in the past. And they have chiseled you, formed you, made you into the person you are to get today. Whether you engaged God early in life, whether you, you were a latecomer, it doesn't matter. We are a sum of all of our yesterdays. And so now I want to get into David's life, into his story this morning, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. This woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. Now it would seem in worldly terms, in human eyes, David has arrived. He is king. He's unified all these people. He really doesn't have anything to prove at this point. He's got a palace. Things, he's brought the ark to Jerusalem. He's got Jerusalem. Things are going really well for him. And, and, and he doesn't have to prove that he's a great king. He doesn't have to prove that he's God's anointed. He doesn't have to prove he's a, he's a warrior because we all know that. And so, and so as the time comes around when, you, when kings are supposed to go out to war and they're supposed to plunder and, and get stuff, I guess that's what you do when you're a king. David sends the people out just to say, yep, Israel's still here. We're going to take your stuff. And um, David stays home. He stays in Jerusalem. He doesn't go out. Maybe he's feeling a little withdrawn, a little bored Maybe he's asking himself the what's next question. He's done so much in such a short amount of time. And so he's at the top of his palace. He wakes up. He gets out of bed, whatever the reason. And he's walking around and he sees this woman. And he sends for her. It's another man's wife. And he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Her name is Bathsheba. He's going to try to cover it up as the story will go. He's going to try to hide this mistake And so he sends a letter to Joab saying, send me Uriah. And Uriah comes to see David and David asks him, hey, so how's the fighting going on out there? How you doing? How you feeling? Why don't you take a minute and why don't you you take some time and go see see your wife? But Uriah won't do it. See, Uriah is a a godly man. He said, "How how can I find comfort in my wife when the ark is in a tent and when Israel's army is fighting? And he won't go. And David tries again. David tries to get him drunk. David gets him drunk. But he won't go to be with his wife. He sleeps outside the king's door. And so David's plan is beginning to fail. And so what he does is he sends him back to Joab with a letter. And in the letter it tells Joab, send Uriah to the front lines to where the fighting is the fiercest. And then when he's there and the fighting is going down, you withdraw from him. And so he will be killed. And Joab does exactly what David asks. And Uriah is killed, just like David planned. And after the time of mourning, Bathsheba is called to the palace. And David takes her as his wife. It seems to be a done deal. If this, if this is the first time you're reading this story, like the story of David, this is, a real, this is a wow moment. This is a side of David we haven't seen up until this point. I mean, yeah, he's not the most perfect guy, and he's kind of figuring it out, and he's weaving through, but this is, this is a big woe. He takes another man's wife, tries to cover it up. From there, he can't do it, and he has the guy killed. It's like a bad movie of the week. 
And I have to ask myself, how can, how can this thing take place? How does sin, how does a sin get so big and so out of control to the point where murder takes place? And so I thought and I came to the conclusion the way it always does. Just one selfish decision at a time. And if we look into the story, I would encourage you to read Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It was, it was, as we look into the story, we see David slowly moving away from doing life with people. And he begins as a king to do life over people. He's the king. But this is the very thing we spoke about last week. We said, this is not who David was. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't lording his authority over people. But now something has changed in him. And you can see it throughout the whole text in chapter 11. Because what does he do? He sends Joab and the men out to battle. And then he sends someone to get intel about this woman. And then he sends for this woman. And he sleeps with her. And then sends her home. And now he wants to cover it up. And he sends for Uriah. And then he would send him back to his wife, but he won't go. And he sends him back to battle with the letter, his own death certificate. And he is killed. David is doing exactly what all the kings would do in his place. He is, he is taking the authority of his kingly power into his own hands and using it exactly the way that he feels he wants to use it. And that is going to get him into trouble. It's going to get him into hot water. But God steps in. God steps in. And God is going to send Nathan to David. He's going to send him his pastor. And this is where we begin to see the gospel of Jesus Christ unfolds. Because Nathan has got a word from God. He's got a, he's got a story for David. And he's going to tell him this story. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And the Lord brings this, this reminder of all that he had given David. But God tells him, you are the man. And not in a good way, not you are the man. This is you are the man. This is the gospel message at its core. You see... The gospel is never about the other person. It's never about the, that guy or, or, or that woman. 
how bad they are, how bad they need to hear this, how bad they need to hear that. The gospel is always about you. It's always, it's always about me. It's always about I. It's not something that it can be defined in just like general flighty terms. It's always very specific. It's always about the person. It's personal. It, it's intimate. It wants to deal with personal brokenness and hurt and pain and trouble and, and loss. The gospel is always about me. Always about what I've done, what I'm doing, and the person I am becoming. And it's the same for each one of you. I never have the right to say, that person needs to hear this much more than I do now. That person needs to understand the gospel better than I do. I mean, I've got this thing figured out. We are never in that spot to push it off on someone else because we think we've arrived. But that's exactly what David is doing here. He's hearing this story about this guy, this mean, rich guy who takes this one small lamb from the poor guy. What he's hear, he's not hearing himself in the story. He's hearing someone else, this, this bad man. And David gets angry. He's about to pounce on him. David is about to throw the first stone. And this is religion at its finest. This is religious hypocrisy in all of its grandeur and its glory. And, and you know, and I think about this, and, and I know we've talked about it before, but that's okay. We'll talk about it again. How many times have we sat in church? And how many times have we thought about, ooh, I wish they were here. Because they really need to hear this. And it's not the grace and the mercy part. It's the spanking part. Oh, they, yeah, ooh, I wish they were here. Oh, you're looking around. Not like, so it's obvious, you know. Mm -hmm. They really need, they need to get it together. Sometimes, and it's not so much now, because I think I've hopefully matured a little bit, but there were times in my past where I would write a sermon, and I'd be writing, and I'd be thinking of people, not the grace and mercy part, but like the spanking part. Oh, they, they, mm mm-hmm. I hope they're here, because... God must be causing me to write this for them. And, and, and every single time, every, and this is, I can, not exaggerating, every single time, those people never come to church that week. And I can hear God laughing at me. Like, you know, I can hear, when I was in sixth grade, we had Sister Anselm. I went to Catholic school. And she was, she was old then. And I can remember her, she'd always shake her finger at me like this. Dennis, you're just a big shot little bullet. And, and I can hear God say that to me in those instances. You're just a big shot, but you think you're a big shot, but you're a little bullet. You're a little bullet. See, that's religion. That attitude and posture to think that somebody else needs the gospel. And I'm kind of, I'm good. But, you know, when we think about things like that, it kind of makes us feel better, right? It makes us feel better if we look at someone else and they are just messing up way more than we are. Because it, it just kind of, you know, I'm not that bad of a Christian because I'm not doing that. I might be doing this, but that is much better or much worse than this. And so I'm a little better than they are because... Just look at that. But, but me over here, I'm, I'm doing okay. And it makes, makes us feel a little better about ourselves. But here is the truth of the gospel. 
You are the man. You are the woman. It's not them. It's not her. It's not him. And this truth, when, he, when David hears it, this truth reels him in, knocks him off this, this religious pedestal that he's put himself on and centers himself on God. Later on, as, 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 uh, as Nathan is telling him all these things that God has done for him. In fact, God says, I've given you everything. And if it wasn't enough, I would have I given you more. And now, what are, you, what are you thinking? And David comes to this point. He goes, I've sinned against the Lord. He hears all this. He sees himself in the story. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally sees that it is him he has come to the enlightened place of realizing that David, King David, a man after God's own heart, anointed by God, is a sinner. But in that statement, I have sinned against the Lord. It's not a place of condemnation. It's not a place of of God wanting to beat you up. See, there's so much hope in that statement. I've sinned against the Lord. Because it doesn't center on us making excuses. It doesn't center on trying to get away with something or trying to cover something up. That brings it all back to God. And we begin to center ourselves on Him. You know, way too many people teach way too many people that the Christian life is all about avoiding sin. It's about you being good, you behaving, and you following the rules. And the only problem with that is it's, it's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And, and I believe that's where the story of Jesus talking, the fair, t- telling, yelling at the Pharisees. You, you, you religious people, you travel miles and miles and miles to find one convert. Then you heap all of this stuff on them. You don't help them out. And by doing that, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Now, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to Africa tomorrow, so you can email me all you want. We cannot avoid sin. We can't. If we could, we wouldn't need Jesus. All you need is Oprah. We cannot avoid sin. And I believe what the gospel does, what the gospel calls us to, is to recognize our sin and recognize we are sinners and in need, desperate need of the grace and mercy of God. It is by grace you have been saved. By faith, not by works. So no one gets to brag. It is by grace you have been saved. But our human our human nature doesn't like to admit that. It doesn't like that realization of, of we might not have it all together, that we can't fix ourselves, that, that we're not really in control. Wait, I'm not in control? Oh, nay, nay, I am in control of the things I do. But the reality is that, that re- we're really not. And, and you know what? We're not God. I know that's, that's a shock to some of you, but you're not God, and you can't save yourself. And you cannot always make the correct choice all of the time. You can't do it. No matter how hard you try, you are going to mess up. You're gonna, and some of you are going to mess up big. And some of you, some of you are going to mess up when you walk out that door. I'm sure I'm going to. 
We can't avoid it. But see, I think we have this fear or this worry that if we surrender to that truth, if we surrender control, if we embrace, if we embrace our, our true selves as sinners, we become less, less human, less people, less, uh, less. But the reality of it is to embrace that truth, to understand that truth makes us more human. And as we become more human, it opens us to the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And fear and worry cannot exist in the light of God's grace and mercy. You know, every, everything that we are, everything that we have is found in, in the Lord our God. I mean, we are loved by him. He provides for us. He blesses us. He sent Jesus into the world to reconcile us back to him. He has created us and everything around us. And that is, that's who we are. That's all of humanity. Nobody escapes that truth. That's who we are. And sin, sin is to deny or avoid that truth. Sin is to deny or avoid that God is everything and we really are nothing except who we are in him. Sin is to avoid that truth. And when we avoid that truth, certain behaviors and actions flow from that. See, sin is not the physical action of doing something wrong, of you messing up. Sin is the spiritual posture of avoiding or ignoring God. Sin is a heart condition, not, not, a, not an action, not a, a behavioral thing. And our capacity to sin is amazingly large. And it's no mystery. And, you know, I've really batted this around a lot in my own, my own spirit. And I've had so many conversations about it. And, and you know, and, and, and I've just kind of like moved through this, this, this stuff, this idea of sin. And, and here's, here's, where, here's where I land. And I think I finally have landed. After so many years of, of like teaching and preaching and, and thinking about this, here's, here's where I've landed. Our capacity to sin is required by what the love and the freedom of God is. Let me say that again. Our capacity for sin is required by what the love and the freedom of God is because forced love is not love. Forced freedom, it's, it's, not, it's not freedom. And if God really wants us to experience the love and freedom of Jesus Christ, there has to be an option not to experience that. There has to be an option to deny or avoid the love and the freedom of Jesus Christ. And that is scary because let me tell you something, Christian, there are places and parts of your life where you are avoiding and ignoring God. And so there are places and parts of your life that you are in sin. And I am included in that. And because of that, we will suffer consequences. David will suffer consequences. David, in, in, in what Nathan was telling David from God, God says, okay, Dave, you know what? You had Uriah killed with the sword. Now the sword will never leave you, which means that, that the sword, that David is always going to be at war from this place forward. And oh, that thing you did in secret with Bathsheba, 
I'm going to send somebody close to you and they are going to do the same thing to you and your wives, but they're going to do it out in public. David suffers consequences for his sin, but his sin wasn't adultery. His sin wasn't murder. David's sin was taking God out of the center of his life and putting himself there. David's sin was taking his focus off of the Lord and putting it on himself and what he wanted and the things that he can do. He's king after all. We can't minimize this thing called sin with just cheap grace. That, you know, God loves me, so I can do whatever I want. God loves you, and yeah, you can do whatever you want. But you can't minimize the consequence of putting yourself before God. And some consequences may be huge. David's were. And you might be going through something big right now. It was a consequence of a poor choice because God was not first. But there was a line that Nathan told David. He said, Dave, it looks really bleak here. But he tells him, you, you're not going to die. The Lord has removed your sin and you will not die. And David found forgiveness. And I'm here to tell you, no matter where in your life that you put you first and not God, no matter what the consequences that you're going through because of that choice, God's grace is even bigger than that. God's love is even bigger than that. You know, the reality of it is sin is pretty uncreative. It's, it's, not, it's nothing really special. And we're actually limited to how we can sin. But the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God is creativity beyond what we can ever imagine. And the Lord's forgiveness cannot be counted in the ways that he wants to pour that out on you. See, for the follower of Jesus Christ. Our sin is not a place of condemnation. For the follower of Jesus Christ, our sin is a place of the Lord's salvation. And that is the gospel message. Lord, I want to thank you for the simple truth of those words. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your salvation. Thank you for who you are and for who we're becoming because of you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that your mercy is new every morning. Thank you that you love us beyond what we can ever understand. And you love us so much you don't want us to stay right where we are, but you want to call us into a deeper unity with you. It's in your son, Jesus the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray against... Lord, I pray against those who are sitting here this morning carrying the weight of guilt. Lord, I pray that you would pour into them your forgiveness, that they would hear the message that the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. And though we may live through the consequence of choices, you, Lord, have taken away our sin we will not die. 
pray for those who need to confess that they may find a moment or a time, even this morning, Lord, to speak to a brother or sister or come forward for prayer and just release that weight that they can begin to walk in the victory that is Jesus Christ. They can just put that, that garbage down. We know that it's the, the work of the enemy to keep us in bondage, but it's the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that sets us free. So we stand humbly before you, Lord, in that name of Jesus. Amen. I love you guys. Pray for me while I'm away. I'm bringing duct tape this time because packing tape just wasn't doing for me. And I'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks, man.